Hello, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance sports training. It is U.S. Thanksgiving. I am sitting here in the studio and I am completely by myself because Grant and Rob are both off celebrating Thanksgiving with their families. I'm here because I'm Canadian and we celebrate the real Thanksgiving, which is back in October. That means today I have no co-hosts. I have no guests. I thankfully have nobody to make fun of me for the fact that I just said something about Canada. So they're going to have to listen to this and just grit their teeth. But we are going to do something different today. We are going to do a throwback, pull something out of the archive that many of you, our new listeners, might not have ever heard. And this is an episode that I really enjoyed when we recorded. So I'd love to bring this back, particularly because we have some context for this one. So we are going back to episode 53, which was a recording we did with Sepp Kuss back in the summer of 2018. This was when Sepp was still riding as a domestic racer in the U.S., had just gotten a contract to go over to Europe, and we were catching him in the summer during that transition. As many of you know, this summer, so summer of 2023, Sepp had a pretty phenomenal summer. He was racing the Tour de France as the chief lieutenant for the ultimate winner of the race. But for most of the Tour de France, Sepp was sitting in the top 10 despite racing for somebody else. It was only on, the, I believe, the second last day where he got caught up in a crash and lost a lot of time and dropped out of the top 10. But showing that potential, he went to the Volta and won the overall in a very dramatic fashion with his own teammates racing against him. So Sepp has proved he is one of the best riders out there. So I think it's really interesting to go back five years before Sepp had raced in Europe to see what was this guy like? Could we see this potential in him? And let me tell you, the fall before, Chris and I had written an article with Sepp on climbing, and we had truly seen that potential in him. We had a time trial in November up a famous climb here in Boulder called Flagstaff. And Sepp really didn't want to do it. He kept saying, I'm not in shape. I don't want people to see my power numbers from this because it's going to make me look bad. And then we time trialed up Flagstaff and Sepp got the second fastest time ever up that climb. And for any of you who know Boulder, you look at the top 10 on any of the big climbs here and it's all famous people. So to get second, particularly in November, and we had snow on the road, that's unbelievable. So Chris and I looked at that and went, okay, there is really something to this guy. So we wanted to dig into, you know, what is he like? What is his motivation? And what I found most fascinating in this episode is we've talked a lot in the show about athletes who are externally motivated and internally motivated. So externally motivated athletes are those athletes who it's all about the win. It's all about beating other people. They don't care that much if they enjoy it. They don't care that much about the process. They just want to win. And obviously, I'm telling you the extremes. On the other extreme, that pure internally motivated athlete, winning doesn't really do it for them. It's all about the process. It's all about going out and executing their intervals as effectively as possible. It's about in that team meeting, they're given a job and then they show up to the race and it's about executing the job of that day. And what we saw in this interview with Sepp is he's pretty extreme on that internally motivated side. When we were asking about trying to win, do you want to go over and win the Tour de France? He was kind of, yeah, 
that doesn't really matter to me. My team manager wants me to do something and I'm going to go and do that. And you could certainly sense in him, it was a, I'm going to go and execute or die. You know, there is a aggressiveness. There is certainly a, a strong motivation in him, but it was about the process. It was about doing the job that was given to him. You watch a lot of movies and the stereotype in the movies about that successful athlete is the externally motivated athlete. But sure enough, there's been plenty of very successful athletes who are very externally motivated. Just watch that documentary on Michael Jordan. But you can also see that there are athletes who are very internally motivated who can be just as successful. So that's what I was fascinated by. That's what I really enjoyed seeing about SEP. So let's go back five years and see that athlete before he went over to Europe and started winning Grand Tours. Ah, November. The air is crisp, the leaves are falling, and I get to take a break from riding my bike. Now is a great time of year to rest and reflect on the past season. Visit Fast Talk Labs and take a look at our pathways on recovery and data analysis. These two in-depth guides can help you get the most from your off-season. See more at fasttalklabs.com pathways. It's been a rapid transition that you've made between collegiate racing pretty quickly to the top of the domestic racing field. And then pretty quickly after that, jumping straight into the world tour. So we want to sit down. We want to discuss all of that. We want to discuss how your training has changed, what things you need to work on, the mental aspects of that transition, the tricks that you've maybe employed, the things you've quickly realize that you need to work on all of that. Why don't you start by giving us a sense of how long you've actually been riding, just that rapid progression that you've made? Yeah, I mean, riding in general, since I was, you know, very young, but, you know, never at a really serious level, like, like a lot of juniors or even younger kids are these days. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think seriously racing i started in 2013 where i was fully focused on at the time mountain biking only and then yeah 2015 did a couple road races to, s- to supplement the the mountain biking and i, I believe i laugh i laugh sorry to interrupt <laughs> i laugh because you're that's three years ago and yeah. now you're in the world tour yeah yeah so i you just spoke about the the collegiate scene and i i think my first race on a road bike was in the Denver city park for a mm-hmm. collegiate race. And I crit. Thought, yeah. Crit. Yeah. I was like, I, I'd never ridden in the, in the drops so much, you know, <laughs> you know and, and I started the, the first 20 minutes or 30 minutes. I was only in the hoods. And then one of my teammates was like, Sep, you need to, <laughs> That's- you need to get in the drops and you, then you can corner and then you can be arrow and yeah. do all these things that I just never really never thought about, but Right. And and that was probably literally three years ago. Yeah. Because that was probably in the spring of twenty fifteen. And here we are twenty twenty eighteen. And you've gone from not knowing to really ride in the drops in a crit to (laughs) racing against the the world's best riders. Right. So that's a great way to encapsulate your rapid (laughs) progression in the sport. Yeah. I'm still getting over the fact that your first road race was a race that I did after I had retired from racing full time. <laughs> and I did it five years before. Oh, man. <laughs> for my last time. Throwback. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, is there something uh, you can share with us about how those transitions have taken place? Let's take the, the first one from mountain bike, collegiate mountain biker to being a member of, of rally and stepping up. You did uh, the Colorado classic last year. I remember so that's in itself a pretty big transition, a, a, a rapid progression. Can you walk us through how that went? Yeah, for me, in the especially in the early stages, it was all pretty, um, pretty natural and just going with what I thought was most appealing or fun at the time. So, yeah, I mean, for me, riding my road bike was always something that I would supplement my mountain biking with. So it's not like I was a total stranger to riding my road bike, but I would never really do any races on it. So, um, and I thought, yeah, I like watching road bike races and it, it seems cool and it seems a lot different than, uh, than mountain biking and certainly a lot different than, than mountain biking is now and in, in the more modern form. So I mm -hmm. thought, yeah, nothing to lose by trying. And at, and at that time, I think the big catalyst for making that choice was I was just kind of not really burnt out on mountain biking, but I was, I, I just felt like I was stalling, you know, I wasn't really getting results to write home about it at world cups or anything. And yeah, I just wanted to see what I was capable of. Cause I felt like I could, didn't really have any more room to grow or maybe not even more potential on the mountain bike. So I thought, yeah, there's absolutely nothing to lose by trying out road racing. That's fair. You were 16. You'd been at it a long time. Explore new avenues in life. <laughs> Can you give us a sense of what your training was like when you were a collegiate mountain biker? Yeah, when I was collegiate, I was, uh, I would pretty much just go on a couple over the weekend. Yeah, just as long as I could ride, basically, and do as many climbs as I could do and until I was dead. And then I would go home and go back to the cafeteria and stuff my face, have a couple Cokes and, you know. <laughs> so, so basically not a lot of thought went into it. It was ride as much as I could and have fun with it. Yeah. It was definitely the more train harder, not smarter type mm -hmm. way. I mean, it was really fun at the time and I don't think I paid any price for it or, you know, it didn't stunt any mm -hmm. development or anything. I think it was just. It's probably yeah. what would it, it, it keeps you fresh too. Like yeah. you don't want a lot of structure perhaps when you're progressing that quickly through the sport mm -hmm. or just getting into it. Yeah. I assume you weren't, uh, using a power meter much or looking at that data no. at, at that time. No, I think I had a power meter starting in 2014. Okay. Yeah. Before that, I would just go on epic mountain bike rides or just all fun and feel. Yeah. Just fun. And, and that, yeah, I never really thought much of it and, yeah, it was never like, oh, I need to make this choice and this choice. It was just, yeah, whatever. You probably at that time didn't think that you were going to become a professional cyclist either. No, definitely not. I thought, yeah, just, I mean, I obviously loved riding my bike, but I'd never thought that I would be post-college that I would be doing this for a, a living or anything like that. I just thought, yeah, do it to the best of my ability, but never was I, I, I never had a plan for myself. Like I have to do X and Y to be a world tour by year 2000, whatever. So right, right. <laughs> never, never had that idea. So you transitioned from mountain biking to collegiate. So you, you started doing collegiate road cycling. Mm -hmm. 
What was it like for you when you started doing your first NRC? So I've seen a lot of guys who are, are racing locally and then they go to an NRC for the first time and it's a bit of a, yeah. a shell shock yeah. reaction. What was it like for you? Yeah, I, I think, uh, 2015, the only NRC race I did was Gila and uh, I was on an amateur team at the time, team out of Utah, Intermountain Livewell. And yeah, I did Gila and I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at climbing. I think like I, 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 I can do the, the, the Strava KOMs in Boulder. I'm probably all right. And then, oh man, I just got totally shattered at that race. So it was, it was pretty fun. And I thought, man, I, I guess I'll never make it as a road racer. Like, That's it's, hilarious. It's just like, oh, man, yeah. I, I can't, I can't climb with the top 30 guys in this race. And, but I, you know, I wasn't like crushed because of it. I just thought, well, like, man, these guys are, are really fast. And then, but yeah, I think that just shows how much in, in road racing, how much of it is, um, experience and knowing how to race rather than just putting your head down and going hard, which you see a lot in your, cause in Europe, you, you see people or you're racing with people that are, that actually know how to race. It's not that they, I mean, they do, but nobody's head and shoulders physiologically above everybody else it's right you know, you're all humans it's yeah. just the uh, intelligence sometimes that yeah makes sometimes a difference. and experience and yeah the ability to, a lot of different things but yeah it's yeah it's, so i was gonna ask so that first time at gila was it they're just that much stronger or was it much as much experience knowing where to be at the right time and yeah i think for me it was a lot of it was experience because i was just using so much energy when i didn't need to and then by the time the the climbs came i was completely empty and i think it was a bit of that and a bit of just physically maturing and you were 21 at the time 20 um yeah 20 or 21 yeah i think it was my sophomore year of college yeah so how did it progress from there was it was that the point where you said i want to try to make a go at this or did you just yeah i mean even even though i didn't in 2015 i think i did i only did gila and cascade and I didn't really have like any big results or anything that indicated that I could do well there. But even then I was much more intrigued by the racing than I was with the mountain bike racing. So I said, well, now, now this is the new project to be good at, at road racing. And so then in yeah, 2016, I said, okay, I'm not going to mountain bike anymore. I'll just focus on this and my best shot and you use the word project do you uh <laughs> this might take us down or off on a tangent but do you consider this like an experiment i know you in the past you haven't had a coach and we've talked about that are you're i assume that you use that word because you're always learning you're always sort of tweaking things and trying to to progress yeah. Yeah, I think it'd be silly to say the racing in the world tour is like a project for me because it's like, I can't, you know, there, there's not much room to, <laughs> right. you know, for, for error or for saying, yeah, I don't feel like doing it, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah, that's probably the, the pinnacle of what I could do. So I think that's pretty exciting, but. Well, so taking a step back, you said you didn't really have any results in 2015 that said anything, but this now became your project. Yeah. What were the steps in that project? How did you say, I'm going to go from what I was in 2015 to a guy who's winning these races? Was there a methodology to it or was it just uh, ride, ride, ride more? Hard? Yeah. I think most of it was just the mindset, really, because when I was mountain biking, I just I didn't have that like winning mindset. 
Cause I knew like, Oh, I'm starting fifth row in this race. It's not feasible for me to get a top 10. I mean, and you know, there, there are guys that do that and they're incredible riders, but I, I was being honest with myself and I said, that's not, not for me. So I think when I, when I fully, at least mentally, when I fully went to the road, I said, okay, this is a sport where you don't always have to be the, the freak of nature or whatever to win the race. And, you know, there's a lot of things that go into actually getting the results. So I said, well, it's, it's not just black and white. So there's a lot of things that I could improve on. And then the racing was so exciting to me. So I said, well, I have so much room to improve in the positioning and, and tactics that that was a big, big aspect of it. Not just the, the, uh, the physical side. Cause I don't think my training changed too much really. Mm. So how'd you figure it out? You didn't have a coach to, to teach you this stuff. So were you talking to people or just go to races and yeah, talk to people. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many people in Boulder that, that have, you know, good information and yeah, just the technique of not just riding in a race, but of like pedaling, being smooth on the bike, all those things that, yeah, that I, I think still a lot of people don't fully notice or understand it themselves. And yeah, it's, it's hard to say what exactly clicked, but I, I really do think it was just the mentality. My, I think my body, I was suited more towards road racing, but mentally I was just more fresh for road cycling. Yeah. Fair enough. So there was never that shell shock of, Oh my God, I'm out of my league. <laughs> I mean, now there is. Yeah. But <laughs> okay. We'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. We're going we're gonna to get there. We're, we're, we're yeah. anxiously await your answers on that. Yeah. But certainly, so in the, in the domestic scene, you never had that. It was just more, this is something that I want to do. You were excited. and Yeah. I mean, there's so much that you can look into. And like nowadays, you can look up any pro on Strava and 60% of them have their power number. You can say, oh, that's a cool interval. Like, might try that today or things like that. Or, or you see the numbers they do in races and you say, okay, well, I, that might be attainable for me with certain amount of training and things like that. So yeah, I think nowadays there's so much that's transparent. Like for me, a guy who likes to, yeah, study on that sort of thing, it, it seemed more realistic. Your mindset fascinates me because there you, yeah. and this is full compliment. We kind of suspected this beforehand that we talked about how you, you progressed that mm -hmm. you just kind of were very methodical about it and, and said, okay, I'm here. I want to get here and I'm going to figure out how to do that. And yeah. you just found your ways of doing it. And it doesn't sound like certainly at the, the domestic scene, there was ever a doubt of, can I do this? It was just, let's, let's figure it out. Mm -hmm. I think back to a race I did a, a long time ago. So this is before your time. The, so the big race uh, back in the old days was Tour de Tuna. And I went with this composite squad and we had two guys on it. One guy who um, he was a really good regional rider where he was from. He was winning a lot of races and they, the idea was the whole team was going to work for him. And then there was this kid on the team. He was 19. He was at his first big race. And it was fascinating watching them because the guy who was the really good regional rider, he was used to just, I can just break away, ride away from the fields and win the mm -hmm. races without yeah. it. He tried this in an NRC. He was out there for 10 minutes. The field caught him. The field <laughs> dropped him. Yeah. And at the hotel that night, he just said, I'm never doing an NRC again. Never did. Yeah. Never, wow. never left where he was yeah. from. The kid was out of his league. He was struggling. He was having a tough time, barely made it through the race, but completely different response. He just went, 
I want to figure this out. This is the coolest thing in the world. Like I, I am definitely not good enough for this right now, but boy, I want to get there. And he ended up going pro. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. And so I was kind of, I had a feeling you were more like he was, even if you struggled, it was just, no, I'm going to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, this year I'm in a totally different situation and even further out of my comfort zone. But I think even if you're just getting your head kicked in all the time, it's for me, it's, it's demoralizing, but it's, you know, you have to start somewhere. And some guys, they're, they're Neo pro year. They're like Bernal. He's winning, <laughs> almost winning world tour races. So, yeah. but yeah, I think those guys are the exception and, and being realistic with myself, it's, you know, I have to start at a, at a lower level or expectations. And yeah, I think if you immediately say, Oh, this isn't for me and it's not in my, not in my wheelhouse, never again, then already losing. But I think it, it, it says something about ego too, you know, like a regional rider that doesn't NRC and gets his butt kicked says, I'm never doing one again because he probably wants to win regional races because he wants that feeling of winning. The 19 year old that says, you know, I, I want to figure this out and turns pro and with you, Sep, it's like, I want to figure this out it's because ego isn't a barrier for you to progress and you are willing to get your head kicked in to hopefully one day figure it out. And whatever that means for you, you're never going to win the Tour de France, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> and you're accept, you accept <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. but, but a result here or there is, is that's what you, keeps you going. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that story that I just told you, I, I tell that to athletes somewhat regularly. And I use that story as, as explaining why failure is important simply because it's exactly that. There was an ego thing. The, the regional rider, he did not like to fail. He did not like to lose. And when he competed at a level where he necessarily was going to lose for a while, he said, no, I want to go back to where I can win, where the, the kid who progressed much further and the, I'm calling him a kid. I'm not giving you the name because uh, I know you've heard of him and you're going to go, wait, he was, you think he's a kid? Uh, <laughs> he's not a kid anymore. <laughs> not a kid any. Well, you know, you, you were Rob Britton's teammate. Yeah. 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 I mean, Rob and I were training out of the same center when he was just starting out. Yeah. That's awesome. What I'm interested in asking you and what this kid was willing to accept is if you really want to hit higher levels, failure is a big part of the game. And it seems like that just doesn't bug you at all. No, not too much. I mean, I think I'm pretty, pretty optimistic, not like delusionally optimistic, <laughs> but yeah, there, there's, there's definitely people that are, I think, delusionally optimistic that, ah, that, that's kind of rude, I guess. But. No, no. <laughs> yeah, especially in cycling, you know, when, the, when it's so accessible to be like a pro, you know, there's people that are just forcing it too much, you know, mm -hmm. but, uh, for me, I'm just pretty, pretty optimistic and I, I know, I know what my limitations are, but you know, you can always surprise yourself. Let's jump into that a little bit. You have had several DNFs this year. Yeah. You're, you've stepped into the big leagues. Yeah. Um, you, you've been in the breakaway at Strada Bianchi. You had some, some highs and some probably more lows though. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And, um, you've had your head kicked in as, as, yeah. as you've said, how do you cope with that? It's hard to say because it's for, for those races, like, for example, like, uh, Bass Country, I've, I've never done anything that's that hard. And I've never done that race before even. So it's, I don't know what to, to go off of for a lot of those races, you know, like, I don't know if what, what kind of improvement I can shoot for like next year or, or 
in the next month because I don't know what, you know, it's completely foreign train to me, you know? So what was, you say it's the hardest thing you've ever done. What, yeah. what was different comparing it to like a Cascades or even a tour of California? For Bass Country, it's just, yeah, harder all day. And like for me, I felt like I was, I maybe probably was like one of the heavier guys, <laughs> you know? So if you, if you get dropped on a, on a climb, there's literally no one to get dropped with. Can you, yeah. t- can you take us through one of the stages? Like, <laughs> yeah, just yeah. give us, yeah. give us the dirty, despairing tale of Sep at the tour <laughs> of the Basque country. Yeah. I think, uh, let's see. The first stage was, it was hard, but it was normal. But the second stage, uh, was, I mean, all the gas were still pretty close on GC. So it was probably like a two hour fight for the breakaway. And we started just on a standard coastal road, kind of mm-hmm. headwind. And then, we got to the top of the climb. It was still beautiful weather. And then all of a sudden the clouds came in and it just started raining mysteriously on this super fast descent. Mm. So then the the group split, I think, right at the bottom of the descent. And somehow I was in the first part of it. Just from covering moves and everything like that, I ended up being. But half of our team was in the second one. Half of us were in the first. So, And then from there, after the big split, we went into this crazy road, I think, road of a thousand turns or something they call it um <laughs> sounds great so when there, you're not racing yeah i was like every every turn full sprint every straightaway i was like lose one position gain one position you know i just try to hang yeah. on and then i look back oh last wheel <laughs> gotta hang on i think and then uh at, at that point it was i was completely completely dead and then then we go up the first actual climb wow categorized climb which is steep goat path <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So then I'm, I'm still last wheel just coming out of these little, you know, nasty corner flat uphill kind of road. And then, uh, yeah. And then I got dropped from the first group and I think, Oh no, like now I'm just in no man's land. Like why couldn't I just stayed with the first group? And then, right. so I'm just kind of there trying to save energy, but not really. And then the, the second group catches me and then we still have to, come back to the first group. So then, so then I'm pulling again with, with mm-hmm. my teammates that are back there to get up to primos again in the first group. And then right when we make contact, then, then we're riding the front again. And which, which I'm happy to do because I'm, I'd rather do my work and be dead last by 30 minutes than just survive. And right. You be, feel like you, you have a yeah. purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that, that probably helps mentally. Yeah, definitely. And then yeah, after that, uh, I think after 30 minutes of pulling, then we started this really heinous <laughs> climb in the middle of the race. Um, I think it was like 12, 15% for, it seemed like it was 10K, but it's probably only like 2K long. <laughs> <laughs> and then got dropped on that. And then uh, I think I there were maybe three guys with me. It just shows the level of that race though. Like no one really. Right. But, but for me, that was that was the limit, you know, and then, for the next, I think 50 K it was just us in the cars, you know, trying to get back. And then right when I get back, I think, Oh yeah, I'll take some bottles, you know, you know, be a good, good teammate. And then, uh, and then right as I take the bottles, start up another, I think just cat three climb. But at that time it, you know, felt like a cat one climb to me and I have like five bottles on me and I think, Oh, I can make it to the top. I can do it. <laughs> and they're like, Sep, just get rid of the bottles. You're not going to make it over this climb. <laughs> yeah. The bottles, right? Get rid of the bottles again. Finally make it to the group over the top. And I think, okay, now, now I just have to survive. Like I, I there's nothing more I can do. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And that was one, stage two. One, one step forward, two steps backward. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So what was your feeling after that? Did you, did you just go back and go, what did I get myself into? <laughs> or were you excited or? Oh, I was, I was pretty excited when I finished. And, never, and then I, got, I get on the bus and everyone looks at me. Oh, Seth, you're, you're alive. You're alive. <laughs> oh, wow. We didn't kill the American there today. Oh, wow. Okay, good. But yeah, after that stage, I actually felt a lot better physically. I think for some reason I just was improving from then on. But I mean, it was still a really hard rate. Every stage was, yeah. So here's a question I have for you. And I, I have a, a definite bias um, in terms of the answer for this question as a coach, <laughs> yeah. but I'm interested in your response. Do you think any amount of training could have prepared you for that race? Or do you feel you need to do races at that level before you can actually do races at that level? Yeah, I, I think in my case, I, I think this is my opinion, but I, I personally think I could have trained a lot more leading into that race. Cause what was it? I think a couple of days before we did a one day race, Volta Lindbergh and, and before that, I was just feeling really, really bad in training and just, I, I was supposed to do a, a power test. I couldn't even do the power test. I mean, I just, I got five minutes in and couldn't even hold anything mm -hmm. worth, <laughs> worthwhile. Uh, Only so, what you and I do. Yeah. <laughs> Probably a yeah. hundred watts no, more no, than what no, you guys are machines. Yeah. So I think, I think mentally for me, it's, it's harder for me to be in a good mental place if, if I know that. I'm not like at my best physically leading into a race for, I mean, for me, it's just in general, it's an adjustment being with like, uh, you know, team, team trainers and everything, not, not in a bad way. It's just, you know, I, I'm used to having, being very, uh, autonomous. And for me, I don't need people like checking in to see how I'm doing training. I just, I do the work and confident in what I do. And then it usually works out, but yeah, it, before that race, I was in a, bad place physically. And I think maybe mentally too, just cause I knew that, yeah, this is going to be a hard race. Like <laughs> I'm not anywhere near my best shape. And even in my best shape, it would still be a, you know, a really hard race to get through. So, so it wasn't a shock to the system of, Oh my God, I had no idea it was going to be this hard. It was just more, you were aware you were going in, not firing on all cylinders. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, personally I had lower expectations. And then when I started improving later in the race, it was probably a a better, better sign. But yeah, going into it, I was just ready to <laughs> suffer. Do you, do you, you know, you going back to your story about the tour of the Gila, the first time you did that, you think, uh, you know, I can climb and, and yeah. you go there and you get crushed. Yeah. Now you stepped up. So then you, you go to the tour of the Basque country and a similar thing sort of to that tour of the Gila experience happens to you. You get your head kicked in. It's really hard. You're like, holy crap. So where do you go from here? How do you get to the point where next year or two years from now at the Tour of the Basque Country, you're not fighting to hang on to yeah. the, the, just the, with your fingertips to the backs uh, of the, the, the group, you're contesting, you're contending, or you're just able to do more work and it's just a, a more pleasant experience. <laughs> yeah. So, so you're asking what, what, what do you think I need to do or? Yeah. I mean, you, you maybe didn't uh, have an exact roadmap of how you went from uh, getting your butt kicked at the tour of the Gila to where you are now, but you mm -hmm. made it there. And I would assume that you want to have uh, better experiences the next yeah. time you do the yeah. tour of the Basque country. So do you have a, a, a plan in your mind of how you get there? Yeah, that, that's a good 
thing to bring up with the uh, with Gila because yeah, it was a similar feeling like, oh, I think I'm I'm okay, but I just did this race and I'm <laughs> you know not not okay. So it's the same thing with uh, yeah, those crazy climbing world tour races where you think yeah maybe I'll maybe I'll get like top twenty on one stage and but yeah, so I think uh, yeah, I think it's the same thing though. Just just doing it once mm-hmm. is better than just going into it for the first time. So I think, yeah, after one, one time of <laughs> being sure. at the back, I, I think, yeah, there's no reason that just from an experience standpoint that it won't be 10 times better than that. Just, mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's optimistic, but I, but yeah, that's just in my observations of how I've progressed in road races. A lot of it is just, yeah, so much experience for me. And then even if I'm in a similar physical shape, I'm a lot better the second time around once I've right. done a race or experienced a certain situation. So that was certainly yeah. what I was getting at with my bias. I'm a big believer that we, we rise or lower to the level of the competition. Yeah. You, you just <clears throat> kind of naturally start to understand here, here's the level that's expected of me. Mm-hmm. And we're actually somewhat, it's difficult for us to really exceed that level. So you need to kind of get hit by that higher level and go, Oh my God. Yeah. And then reset your expectations in, in your head of what's normal. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think my, usually if I'm going to race, my expectations are usually pretty, pretty accurate. So it's not like I get super, super frustrated, you know, after a race, I I can move on pretty quick, which is for me, it's a strength because, you know, there's always, always another day, always another race and it's not the end of the world, (laughs) you know, but yeah, I think where, where maybe some guys struggle, especially in their first years, not that I've been through it yet or anything, but if you just dig yourself in a mental hole, then you're never going to have different expectations or you're always have expectations that are too, too high. And then you're, you're never satisfied or you are a true optimist. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the big question I want to ask you and please take your time with this. You know, one thing you've demonstrated is you've been somebody who's able to jump up a level, get kicked around a little bit and and stay centered, stay focused and, and figure it out. And, learn to be successful at that next level. And it's kind of exciting to have you in here while you're in the process of that yeah, right now. Yeah. But certainly everybody, and, and I'm going to say most of our, our listeners here at some point or another are going to take on a race that's going to be above any the, the level they're used to. And they're going to have to confront being a little out of their league. What advice do you have for the listeners for dealing with those situations? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I guess first first bullet point in that would be... uh just know that if you've done the the preparation and you've obviously earned that through just being like starting in this race, you know, whether, whether it's cause you're in, in that category of you're a cat two and you just upgraded and now you're in a cat two race or, or you're, you know, you're a pro and you're in a pro race, you've, you've obviously earned that. So it's not like you, you shouldn't be there. So that's, you know, the first mental roadblock. And then just know that when it's, when it's really hard and you think, Oh man, I might let go. This is really, this is really hard. It's, it's hard for everybody else. You know, that's, I, I think that's what you notice in Europe. It's like when it's hard, everyone, everyone's suffering, but they're also really good at suffering and some guys are good at hiding it too. So it's, you think, Oh man, like this is, this is mentally and physically really hard, but you just have to, you just have to hang on. Sometimes you just don't have a choice, but to, to hang on. At least if you, that's what you think of in your head, think, no, there's no, no option. I need to hang on to this group. Then what does it mean to be 
really good at suffering. I think people <sighs> out there don't, you know, that that's a bit vague. Do you use any particular strategy to help you cope with the pain, the suffering and the, is it a mental thing? Is it a, do you have a mantra? <laughs> do you uh, play a, play a specific song in your head? Is there anything like that? Or is it just sheer no, determination? No mantra, but I think just from experience, like when you let go and you have let go for what, 10 seconds or five minutes, you think, Oh man, you know, you, it, it's, it's almost a worse feeling than hanging on and, and, and being in that other dark place. So I, you, you always, at least for me, I think back to that. I think it's, it's worse when, when you not give up, but when you can't go anymore and, and the, regret the, the it men, afterwards, the, the yeah. mental outweighs the, the physical of it. And I work with athletes who yeah. struggle with that. One of the, the things I have them do is when they line up on the start line, they have to finish the race. Mm -hmm. The reason being when they get to that point where they're really hurting and, and let go. It's usually with the idea, well, I'll just pull out of the race. Yeah. All you have to do is have one race where you sit there behind, chasing behind the field by yourself for an hour with everybody on the sideline going, way to go. You do it. <laughs> yeah. To just kind of go, I'm never doing that again. Yeah. Yeah. I will go to that other dark place and hang on. Yep. Yeah. So I don't have to be behind the field for an yeah. hour. Yeah. Cause yeah, then you always, you know, when, when you're decompressed from the, the race or whatever, you always look back and think, yeah, I probably could have. I probably could have just dug a little deeper. Yeah, I won't. I won't let it happen next time. It takes a while to to know that, but I think that's what I I think of. It's just the disappointing yourself. Those feelings so, of guilt or regret or whatever yeah, you want to call regret, it. Just, yeah. yeah. So continuing with that question, let's take that cat two. This guy's. You, know, you have a rider. Um, they've just upgraded to cat two. They've gone into a race and they just got yeah. kicked around, dropped out of the group, finished way back. What do they do then? What, what do you do to get yourself back on course? Do you reevaluate your training? Is it just mental and tell yourself eventually I'm going to figure it out? Or, or how do you keep yourself from getting demoralized? And it's definitely helpful to evaluate, but I don't think it's necessarily good to evaluate the whole, whole training because yeah, a lot of it is just, just trust. Yeah. Sometimes it's just, just a luck thing or, you know, and, and, and there's so many, so many factors in road races. Like you got, killed in this crit but these three guys were it was their peak peak event of the year and and for you it was your your build up or whatever and yeah there's there's so many people in the race and so many different outcomes that you can't just be set on that end result because there's so many so many b variables that are out of control you know so if you, if you did your best i don't see why you can't go into the next race and think okay well maybe the whatever variables there are are going to work in my favor. Maybe, maybe I'm good at crosswinds and you know, the next race has crosswinds. Maybe then those guys that beat me in this race will be behind or let's keep in perspective. Yeah. That's a good way of, to put it. Yeah. <laughs> I just had a bad race. So I suck and I should quit. That, yeah. Yeah. I don't no think you should think yeah, never, never good to, to take it personally. I don't think. Yeah. In The Future of Coaching, which is the last module release of The Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel, we envision what the future of coaching looks like in the years to come. While artificial intelligence will play a critical role, AI will never completely replace coaching. However, leveraging its attributes to find the right balance of personal connection with automated tasks will be vital to remaining relevant with future generations. 
check out The Craft of Coaching Module 14 at fasttalklabs.com. We have this sort of unique opportunity because last November, all three of us sitting here worked on this Science of Climbing project. And it's November, you go out and do a, a time trial up Flagstaff Mountain in Boulder, which is sort of a famous climb. Everybody uses it to test their form. You're wearing lots of clothes. It's 30 degrees Fahrenheit out. Day. It was cold that day. <laughs> yeah. And you set time that until yesterday oh, was, yeah. was second on the list. Lachlan uh, went up there and, oh, okay. and, and, wow. and, and bested you. He's worthy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now we're talking to you and it's well into your first season on the world tour. It brings up a, a number of questions in my mind. At the time you said, Oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going too fast now for, for being in November. I'm not overtraining um, because I'm getting ready for the, the world tour. I'm not, I'm not doing anything differently than I mm. would otherwise. And Trevor and I are like, well, you know, <laughs> if I were him, I'd be like, man, I'm stepping up. I've got to maybe do a little bit more. Yeah. Looking back on that time, did you do too much? Were you over, did you come in a little bit over, not overcooked, but with a little bit too much in you? Yeah, it's hard to say because, yeah, c comparing it to like 2016, I was training a lot more at that time in, in 2000, you know, and I was, yeah, maybe comparing 2016 to the beginning of, what was that, 2017, mm -hmm. November 2017, I was in, yeah, much better shape 2016 at that time, but you can't really compare, like, I, I guess I was so used to taking like four months off the bike for, for ski season, you know, and then start riding again in May and then, you know, start skiing again when, when the snow falls. So, mm -hmm. so now it's like, Oh, I'm a, I, I'm a cyclist. Like I like to ride my bike. If I, if I take like four weeks off completely or just running or whatever, then I come back and I have like knee injuries and all this stuff. So I, I just prefer to, to ride more in the off season. But, uh, yeah, so this season was pretty, um, I'd say pretty relaxed relative to, seasons before uh, in terms of riding or training during the off season. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe a bit more rest, just knowing how hard the, the races are in the spring and just being a little, a little fresher, but yeah. So you're saying that that <clears throat> is what you did or that what you will be doing next year uh, or both? <laughs> I, I, I was kind of like half in half out. Cause I said, Oh yeah, it's, yeah, maybe good to have a bit more rest, but at the same time, you know, I, I want to not just be surviving in the spring races. So maybe I should, you know, really, really go all in now and then, and then take a good break in the middle of the season, but which has usually worked for me. But, um, yeah, maybe I underestimated the, the amount of rest that you need leading into a, huge season and more race days and everything. Cause I think in the past, it, at least on the U S scene, I was yeah training a lot more, a lot more intensity. Yeah. Just, just more in general and maybe, maybe training at a, a higher level in terms of numbers that I was putting up in training, but, but I wasn't racing nearly as much as, as I am now. So, so now you're getting more of it through your <clears throat> racing. Yeah, I think. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the groupettos still go pretty, pretty fast. <laughs> Not that big a time cut. You no, gotta keep no. moving. Yeah. I'm curious also to know if I don't think you're adamantly opposed to having a, a coach. 
you didn't have a coach when we were working with you in November. I assume that there are the Lotto NL Yumbo has some coaches that you're working with. Do you think that, have you reassessed whether you need a personal coach to work with you to get you to the next level, to, to be able to compete more in these races that you're now doing? Yeah, I think just from the, the team standpoint, yeah, you definitely need coaches that are internal just to make sure everyone's doing the work and because it, it's, it's very formulaic, not in a bad way. It's just they have this certain race where they need these riders to be ready and, and this rider to be the leader. So I think for them, it makes it easier to, to manage everybody from a coaching standpoint. So I can totally understand that. But I think for me, like I mentioned earlier, at least mentally, I, I work better, just do my own thing. Not, I think something I can improve on is like leaving comments on my, you know, my training files. Cause I think, well, if, if it went good, I don't have anything, anything to say. If, if, if something goes bad, you'll, you'll hear from me, but usually it's pretty, uh, pretty even keel with mm -hmm. in terms of what right. I, what I have to say. But, but obviously communication is, is, uh, really important. But yeah, it's, it's hard to say if I would be, uh, be better in, in this, in this like world tour situation, if I would be better doing my own thing or, or with, uh, yeah, more managed, mm -hmm. I guess. Trevor, I, I know, I think you probably have some, some things to say. Actually, I really don't. <laughs> no, I, I'm quite interested. I mean, as, as we've talked about, every athlete is different and some really need guidance yeah. from everything I've seen of you. You're not somebody who just trains haphazardly or randomly. You're, you're very thoughtful about it. And, you know, my guess is if we looked at your, your training routine, we'd say that's, that's very structured. That's yeah, well yeah. coached. And you figure that out on your own. And you also have to be comfortable with your training. And, and every time we talk about this with you, I kind of hear in your voice this, I like my freedom. Uh, I like yeah. to be making my own choices. <laughs> and you don't like the idea of somebody coming in and telling you what you should be doing every day. Yeah, it's not that I don't like the idea, but if, yeah, for example, if I have a, a, a general training day, then I think, Oh, what should I do? And then I, and then a lot of the times I'll just end up doing something stupid, like just riding 270 Watts for, you know, whatever. And then is not really going to do too much for you, but yeah, <laughs> I, that's, I that's mean, zone one for for me. That's, that's hard, but it's, yeah. If, if I, uh, yeah. yeah, if for me, if, if, if it's open-ended with, with someone telling me that it's open-ended, then I'll always strive to do something. Yeah. Maybe stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something that you look back on two days later and say, Oh, I shouldn't have done that. That's why I'm tired today. But before it was more, more methodical because I had just this plan. Right. And yeah, now it's a, it's a different plan because you have different roles and you know, you may not know, if you're going to be subbing in for a race that weekend or something like that. So it's, uh, it's just different, different training philosophies, which, which is not, not a bad thing. Just, uh, just, just figuring just it out. Getting used to yeah. It. yeah. So the question I'm interested in asking you is you obviously figured out a, a very good training routine to, to make yourself very successful in the North American circuit. So you're now just now getting over to Europe. You've talked to us about Basque country and, and what some of these races are like. Now that you're getting a sense for it over there, what elements would you change about your training? 
Is there anything you look back and say, that was good for North American style racing, but boy, I need to do it differently now. Yeah, it's interesting because, like I said, the team has a general coaching philosophy. So you can say, oh, look, look at Primo's. We're doing similar training, but he's already won two World Tour races this year. Right. You know, so obviously it's really good training. So, yeah, I can take confidence in that. But I think for, for the North American stuff, I guess I was training in a way that was where I could win, win the race. You know, it was all about making that like a winning acceleration or being able to attack. Yeah. Being able to attack or being able to clear the lactate when, when it's, you know, a, a kilometer to go and now it's different roles. So maybe, yeah, more low, low threshold training and yeah, just to make it through the, the longer races. And in the U S it's really high power at the end, but everything preceding that is not so it's really yeah. U.S. is really working that high intensity, working that yeah. big power. Yeah. Europe's much more about you need to hang on for five hours. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. You need to be extremely, extremely efficient. Yeah. Be able to produce that 20 minute power that you did in the U.S. after <laughs> riding 150 watts. But you need to do that in Europe after riding <laughs> a lot more than 150 watts it, it's also I, I mean you're hinting at the fact or not even hinting but saying it has a lot to do with the the, the role that you play it yeah. used to be when you're on rally you were going for stage wins yeah now you're bottle guy mm-hmm. so your role is completely different you don't necessarily need to function in the same way your training has has evolved because of that mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah I would agree with that so for the guys over in Europe who are trying to, to win, is it, are they training similar to the, the guys trying to win in the U S or is it still different? Mm. I, yeah, I think they train a lot easier than guys in the U S <laughs> really. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's my, yeah. How, how so? Not, not easier. Just, just different. Is it more intelligent? Just a lot more low intensity. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd say that. Yeah. A lot more. The hard days are really hard and the easy days are really easy. Yeah. Yeah. It's more polarized. Yeah. Just a lot more, a lot more mild, you know, just, Mm. just a lot more just riding, I guess. Okay. Mm. At at least that's what I've noticed in my own training too. It's a lot of just, just riding. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just riding. No no secret, uh, no secret formulas, just. Are there numbers attached to those, those easy rides or or are they just like go easy or do they say stay below Uh, this one? Yeah. For me, it's ride less than 210 Watts. Yeah. Just ride. Okay. So 210 Watts. um, (laughs) So we measured when he was just coming off of a a break, uh, SEP's threshold uh, power at right about 330. I'm guessing you're significantly higher than that now. So you're when when you're saying 210 watts, we're probably talking 60, 65 percent of your threshold power. About that, yeah. I can't do that math. In my Sorry, it's <laughs> two thirds. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Pretty easy. Yeah. And and let's disregard your results. Yeah. Let's throw that. I mean, it's hard to do, but throw out all the other things that have to do with bike racing. How do you actually feel physically? Do you feel stronger than you've ever been? No, no, no. But yeah, it's it's just such a different situation. You know, like if I, if I compared a a lactate test I did 
after California last year to now, it would be probably much better last year. But, hmm. but yeah, yeah there, I think there's, yeah, there's so much going into that. You know, the fact that I've already done probably like three fourths of the race days that I did last year and that all the rest that's associated with that and heavier than I was last year, just for what, whatever reason, you know, hmm. just, just think, things like that. Joe Dombrowski, one of the leaders of EF Education First Ray Pack, presented by Cannondale, was the 2015 winner of the Tour of Utah. This year, Dombrowski and the EF Education squad were what accepts top rivals for the yellow jersey. On the second to last day, the queen stage of the tour, EF Education took control before the finishing snowbird climb and relentlessly attacked Sepp, trying to take the jersey off his back. When Dabrowski attacked, Sepp went with him, quickly wilting the group down to just a few riders. And ultimately, Sepp dropped all of them and went on to win his second of three stages in a row. We bring this up because we recorded an interview with Dombrowski about his training for our episode on polarized training, but unfortunately didn't have the space for it. Thankfully, we hung on to the interview knowing we'd be able to use it in a future episode. So now we have this incredible opportunity to compare the training of two of the biggest contenders at this year's Tour of Utah. Without offering any opinion, let's hear what Dombrowski has to say about his training since 2015. Do you take a polarized approach to your training? I would say that for me, it depends on the time of year. The last few years, I've, in the winter, gone to actually a really low volume, highly anaerobic focus. For example... In December, a week, I might only do 14 to 16 hours on the bike in a week, but... Which for you is low? Which for, yeah, for a world tour rider, that would be a pretty light week. Yep. So I've gone to this sort of winter plan of doing these low volume weeks where maybe I'll have one and a half to two hours a day and then one long ride per week. And... But with that, I've been doing typically three days in the gym per week, mostly focusing on major compound movements. So squatting, deadlifting, um, I use the leg press, and then the rest is more like sort of core stability type, type work. And then on the bike, a lot of focus on maximal efforts from five seconds to two minutes and also this year, actually, I did quite a bit of riding, probably twice a week on a fixed gear, which, you know, I, I didn't have a power meter on it. I just go by heart rate. But it's similar in that, you know, if you go do a, a ride on rolling hilly terrain on a fixed gear, you're going to be stomping up some climbs at 600 watts, and then you're going to be spinning at 130 RPMs downhill sometimes. So you, you have a lot of variability in cadence, um, but also power. Mm-hmm. And then later in the year, you know, now sort of getting into this like pre-Giro first Grand Tour of the year time period, I go more to more sustained efforts, a lot more volume. And I've this is the third winter I've done this. And I started it when the winter after the 2015 season Jonathan Vodders, who's obviously our team manager, started writing my training plans. And we we did this focus, you know, on this really anaerobic stuff, mostly because I'm already so 
uh, I, I do well with, you know, these longer efforts at altitude, really steady state stuff. Mm -hmm. But often the, you know, the hardest part of the race for me is just jumping out of corners or coming into the bottom of climbs, that sort of stuff. And the first year, so 2016, it worked really well. 2017, we started throwing a lot of this like fat max, like steady state type efforts in, in the winter as well. So it'd be like, you know, maybe two day blocks with like an anaerobic focus. And then the second day we built up to even like, it was a bit crazy, but like I would do like a six hour ride with three times 90 minutes at like 320 Watts. And it didn't work at all. Like I was, I was, uh, I just really, most of the year I didn't ride very well. And I probably trained a bit too hard in the winter. And I don't know if I really, I mean, there were times that I was like kind of close to where I knew I, where I knew I can be, but it wasn't a great year. And, um, this year, this winter, we went back to kind of that anaerobic focus over the winter, but stayed away from that sort of middle, if you just, I guess, middle power, if you want to call it that. And now I've gotten into, uh, you know, I've been at altitude, been doing more longer sustained efforts. So I guess to go back to your question, there are times of the year where there's really polarized training in the sense that uh, this winter I'd go out and do maybe two hours in the morning and ride at 200 Watts and then do eight, one minute maximal efforts. And then in the evening, go to the gym and be squatting in the gym, like five by five, uh, sort of reps. Mm -hmm. Whereas now that we're getting closer to my big objectives for the year, we kind of get away from that. And personally, I found that that sort of model works well for me, uh, kind of developing that real peak power. And then as we get more into the season, adding in more volume. And sometimes I come into the season a bit, maybe undercooked, you know, like some of the races in February or March, you haven't really done much volume yet. And, and maybe it's not all quite there, but I feel like that model works pretty well for me. How have you and Jonathan arrived at this point? Is he, is he reading journal articles? Is he picking up things from other coaches or is he, uh, are you and he working together to sort of experiment with things a little bit because you know what you're good at, you know, some of your weaknesses and you're trying to just bring everything up to the next level. Yeah. I mean, I think he's well-informed, but also some of it is, um, you know, there's value to experience as a, as a rider. Um, you know, I think you can, for example, you could go to school and learn all about training and physiology and, um, really have the, you know, academic side of it down. But I think there's a lot of value to, um, having raced at a high level and, and you have that experience. So I think it's a bit of that. And there is probably some degree of experimentation because you don't always know how someone is going to respond individually to, to a given type of training. Right. But at the same time, you know, from my end, 
while obviously sometimes mistakes are going to be made, you have to be a little bit careful about that because, you know, this is, this is my career and you can't, you can't afford to make it a big experiment. Um, so I think too, you have to kind of, uh, keep your wits about you and sort of, you know, not, uh, I, I wouldn't drift too far off. There's more to be the top pro than just trading. Let's get back to SAP and talk about nutrition and living in Europe. This often comes up when uh, people go to Europe, particularly in cyclocross riders that might go over for a brief period of time. And they struggle with the lack of familiarity with everything from the surroundings, but particularly to their food mm-hmm. and all of that. Is that has that been a struggle at all finding the the things that you perform best on in terms of your nutrition? Mm, not too bad. I mean, I think in the U.S. you have just a lot of variety, so you can either eat absolute garbage or you can eat, you know, <laughs> really true. really good food. So, but that, but that's on you to you can walk into King Supers or whatever, and you have you take the blue pill or the red, you know. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's not talk about pills. Yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> keep it G rated. Uh, but yeah, in Europe, I think yeah, you're you're definitely limited. But I'll I literally eat anything, so I don't I'm not picky at all. But I I do really like to eat. Yeah, for me in Europe, I say oh oh that's a cool food I've never seen before. Uh, that's a nice cured meat. <laughs> I I don't know if it's good or bad for me, but I, I want to try it. <laughs> so then yeah, there's much more experimentation where in the u.s it's like okay i'll get some rice for dinner and some some meat and and i'm happy with that but over there it's oh it's this fun fun topping to right i think i think one thing too and correct me if i'm wrong but you're living an adventure right now a little bit too which is which is sort of envelops everything that we're talking about this is you're a kid if i'm if i do say so myself you're a kid Living in Europe with another kid, Nielsen Paulus, yeah, yeah as yeah. your roommate. Living in Europe, racing bikes, and it's an adventure. And you're trying this, and you're trying that, and you're going to Basque Country. And you just described this heinous story of a stage. And Trevor asked, "And how did you feel after that?" And you're like, "That I was pretty excited about that." <laughs> yeah. You know, this is. Yeah. I mean, the other part of this big story is that you're living a dream. Yeah, definitely. I mean. It goes, it goes both ways because you have to embrace everything that you or you know, take everything in that you can when you're on this journey. But at the same time, you're, you know, it is a job and you have to be, you have to be good and serious, you know, and, serious and, and you gotta, it. you gotta show up on, at the race and, and know that you've rested properly, eaten properly, trained properly because there's no margin for, for that kind of, Stuff like where it would be on the U.S., you think, oh, yeah, I can have Taco Bell before the before the crit. You know, it's not going to hurt me. But you know, you can't over there. You can't have Taco Bell before the time trial at <laughs> at some world. Tournament. It's just not going to. It's just not the same margin. So yeah, I think that's been yeah an interesting challenge for me because pretty easygoing. I think I function best when I'm not worried about all the little like when I'm on the bike, I'm very focused and I do what I need to do, but off the bike, I can be maybe not, not as focused as I, as I should be. But for me, it's finding a balance. Cause if I went totally monk mode, I would, I, Burn would, out pretty I would not be a, a happy, happy camper. And the, but then on the other side, if I, if I'm drinking beer and eating chips every day, it's probably, 
not the ideal situation for me or, or anybody else. Right. Um, you so, might not last very long either. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, just, just two, two extremes. And I've, I've never been at, at any one of those extremes. I think I've had a really good, good balance. And that's, I think I credit that a lot to how I've been able to progress like I did is because, yeah, nothing was ever super forced. I think it goes back to your point too. It wasn't even a point. It was a statement about how you just carry yourself, which is setting reasonable and not delusional (laughs) expectations of yourself. And that means sometimes setting your ego aside, just understanding the situation, considering all of the other players, the course, whether it suits you, where you are in your season, taking all of that information in, whether it's literally writing, you know, like doing, going through a checklist or just having this innate sense, like you probably do at this point and setting a reasonable expectation. And therefore, if you go into a race and you get your butt kicked and you've got your expectations really high, you can get yourself into trouble that way. Yeah, definitely. And, and I don't think the expectations should ever be like, uh, like a number or anything like, like last year when I was like before tour of Utah, I said, okay, I'm in, I'm in good shape tour Utah is coming up. I, I think I can do well, but I never said, oh yeah, I'm going to, I need to get top 10 or top three or whatever. Cause then, then it's just one more thing that's like nagging at you mentally. If you don't accomplish that thing, which is just a, just a number. So yeah, for me, it's just the, the process goals. Like now for me, it's like, contribute to the like chasing or get to this point in the, in the race instead of this point where you got dropped earlier. Like let's, let's make it to (laughs) 2k to go instead of 10k to go. And, and then if if you set those reasonable processes for yourself, then, then it's a lot easier than saying, Oh, nationals is coming up top three or bust, you know, that, that, that just doesn't, doesn't help you. So you're focusing on the execution. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Which I think is a, a great thing because yeah. when you're standing on the start line, there is nothing you can do to control whether you cross the line first or not. And yeah. people have a hard time understanding. You can race the perfect race and get yeah. a flat tire 10, yeah. 10 miles from the finish yeah. and you're going to finish dead last. Mm-hmm. But you do control things like how do I how prepared do I come into the race? Am I going to ride at the front of the field? How am mm-hmm. I going to approach this climb? <clears throat> and it sounds like those are the things you really focus on. And if you do it all right. And the form is there, the, the, the result might be a, a win, but that's not the focus. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the focus. And I mean, it sucks to not get the result because that's what you, you want in the end. That's what everybody wants is to, is to win or get their best number in the end. But it, it's, it's, it's hard to let go of that. I guess, like you said, it's, there's just, there's just so much going on that you just have to respect that, you know? I think it also turns the focus towards yourself. And you, you can't, you can focus on yourself. You can't worry about the other people that might show up because if you say, I'm going to get fifth or I'm going to get first, but then other riders that are better than you show up, then that's just, you can yeah. only, you can, you have to focus on yourself at some point. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah. So just do your best performance and let the chips land where they land. Yeah, definitely. And like for me, being a new, new pro, like, you know, I've, I've talked to other guys and they say, yeah, it's, it's, you know, everybody is on a different, different pathway. You know, there's like, there's the, the slow burners that they're not really anywhere in the races. And then, and then finally something clicks and then they start to, to do well or, and then, and then there's also people that are 
immediately good. And I don't, it's, I don't think it's good to, to, yeah, compare yourself to, to people that are on different trajectories because everyone's, everyone's so different. And then if you're comparing, you say, Oh, well, he got, he was top 10 in all these races in his first year. And I'm, I'm not. Then I, 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 I would imagine that in yeah. your team specifically, that's a good point to make about your team specifically, because you've got this guy, Primoz Roglic, who's in some case, in, in, in some people's minds, it seems like he's come out of nowhere. He's a ski jumper and mm-hmm. he has been riding bikes a lot and he's just crushing it. Mm-hmm. So if you compare yourself to him, you're going to probably get demoralized because he's just yeah. got that talent. He's yeah. Things are clicking. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's working for him. Is that something you talk about on that team specifically because he's he's got that talent and it's clicking? Yeah, I think for Primo's like every yeah everybody knows that he's just a freak of nature. But but yeah, he he did it. Like if you look, but he did have to go through the ranks, you know, riding for a continental team. And he tells us stories about like his first team time trial. He didn't know that you you could not take poles, you know. So he just would ruin himself taking poles and then. <laughs> get dropped and make some good time trialists now, I guess. Yeah. yeah, But everybody starts from, from somewhere. And yeah, he, he's a super humble guy and has a lot of humility too. And yeah, it's interesting to hear his stories about stupid things he's done in races or yeah, it's, it's interesting to to see the the humility that that those top riders have. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool to be part of that. Yeah. So it definitely sounds like in the races, you aren't, so you said you aren't really focused on the result. It's much more focusing on the process, focusing on your performance at the time. Does that carry after the race? Do you spend a lot of time saying, man, I didn't do well in that race or I did really well in this race? Or is it just, okay, that race is done. Now let's get back to the the process of training and getting ready for the next race. Yeah, for me, I just tried not to really dwell on it too much, you know. If, if it went well, then yeah, it's, it's awesome. And that's good, good fuel for the, for the fire. And I can carry you through the whole year. You know, one, one result can really improve your, your confidence. But yeah, I think it's, for me, it's, it's just easier if I just start focusing on the, on the next thing. Cause yeah, say you had three bad races. If you're only thinking or reviewing and reviewing the bad races, then, then there's just more in your head saying, Oh, yeah, that's, that's bad or, you, you have to, you have to get so much better. How is it possible that then you're just, yeah, stalling yourself? I think what I love about this is, I mean, you watch movies and whenever they show you somebody who's very successful and a champion, they tend to like to show this image of somebody who always has to win. And if they don't win, they're kicking in the walls and, yeah. and, and at home dwelling about it. And that's yeah. here. You are somebody who's progressed amazingly fast, gotten to the highest level, extraordinarily fast. And you are so process oriented. You really look at it as just, there's going to be a whole lot of races. Some are going to go well, some are going to go badly. And I'm just going to focus on what I need to be doing next and what I need to be doing next and and continuing to progress my level. And it's much more level-headed and you don't get caught up in any particular race. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the races are races and yeah, there's, there's only so much you can do. For me, the most stress I have is in, in the training. Cause that's, that's what I can control. The races you, you can only control so much. So if, if I'm in a, in a mental rut or something, it's usually something that's like, Oh, I don't feel good in training or, Oh, that's, it's not where I should be kind of thing. So that, that 
for me personally, that's harder to break out of because yeah, like you said, it's, it's, it's processes and, and in training, the process is all on you, but in the race, it's multiple things. You can adapt better. Would you, would you say your perspective, your approach is an outlier or you find that's the way most of the guys in your team approach it? Oh, yeah, it's, it's hard to say because you don't always see into the mental side of, of some guys. Yeah. And, and, and you see, like, especially when guys are so good, you know, you think, oh, it's all nothing. Nothing's hard for them because <laughs> right? they're just machines. <laughs> good, you yeah, know, they, yeah. yeah, there's just, yeah, there's definitely a lot of guys on my team that at least for like from the outside, you'd think, oh, that, you know, like you said, that guy's got to be super anal and yeah, just never happy or never, uh, yeah, never pleased with the, the last result, always shooting for the next thing. But yeah, I think a lot of those guys are pretty easygoing because they know what, what they can do and what they can't do. And, right. You used to, in your short time on the d- domestic scene, scene in, in North America, have a chance of winning. You don't really have that chance right now. So you're a worker, you're domestique. It seems like for a guy like you, that's perfect. You're perfectly willing to do that work play that role, have that purpose, do as much as you can and be satisfied with sort of that uh, work ethic at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's true. But I think ultimately you need to, to get the results because that's what it's all based on in the end. It's the confirming whatever they see in you, whether that's being the, the lead out guy or being the, the last man in the mountains or, or being the guy that, that wins the race. Like you, you need to get the result in the end. So I think, yeah, maybe it's a, it's a different mental switch like this year for me, just, you know, working and and having pretty, pretty low pressure environment, you know, just as long as I do the work that they tell me to do in the meeting, then it's it's okay. But yeah. Could you, could you take us inside what it's like on the, on your team before a race and how, how it's all sort of spelled out who's, who's doing what yeah, the weeks before the race, we have a general plan and general expectations for, for each rider. So with our schedules too, we know like, okay, I have this race in August and it looks like I'll be the, the helper for this race. So that's, that's pretty clear. Yeah. That, that everything's very, very clear, which is nice. You know, there's not much ambiguity Mystery, about, yeah, yeah right. which is, which is good, especially if you're there to do, uh, do a job because you'd know exactly what's expected of you. So yeah, we have that general idea going into it. And then before each stage, we kind of just go over that again and then yeah, say, all right, you guys are covering the moves in the beginning and, and then maybe two guys will, you know, ride on the front or, or be the the first like workers to sacrifice themselves. And then, uh, depends on the race situation. It's it's really not too overly specific because they, they know that, you know, you can't plan because I, I've been in, I've been in both. I've been in meetings where, where it's so specific that you think, okay, like, I guess that's <laughs> yep. how we're going to do it. And I don't know if it's going to work, but it's, we're going to do it. And then, yeah, when, if it's so specific like that, it usually doesn't ever pan out like that. And you can't plan for situations. And if it's, if everybody just knows, I think all you need to do is know what your role is. You can focus on yourself. Yeah, everyone, yeah. everyone's smart enough to, to figure it out in the heat of the moment. We did a whole episode yeah. on that. Have roles, not a plan, because plans yeah. go out the window on the start line. Yeah. I think, yeah. The, I think the only place you can, if you have a stage where you have 
like three category one climbs and it finishes with an HC climb, you could be pretty confident how that, that stage is going to play out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Beyond that, you just never know. No. Yeah. I don't think we've ever had a super formulaic plan. Now that you've had your eyes opened to this world, to this world tour, what are, what do you think you're capable of? We don't have to put a number on it. <laughs> <laughs> for me, I'm, I'm more motivated for not like grand tours or anything necessarily. I, I mean, it'd be awesome to race some, but I think like one day races like Lombardia or something would be, would be cool to perform at. But I'm in terms of what I'm capable of, I, I, I think it's really fun to be like a really good support rider. I think that's, that's motivating for me. And I, I know some guys that's, it's not motivating, but for me, I, it's cool to be part of like a, a team, team effort and winning, winning contribution. And I think that would be cool for me to do. But yeah, for, for individual goals, I think just, yeah, those cool one day races, Lombardia, Strada Bianchi would be cool. The races that are fun to watch, I think are <laughs> the mm -hmm. races that I would like to do well in, but yeah, it's hard to say exactly where, how, how far I can go or. Cause, cause there's people that have a, a vision of what you're going to become. And then there's you and I'm, I'm the only one that can, <laughs> you know, do Make it, it in happen. The end. Yeah. 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 Right. But yeah, you, you can't worry about what other people are like. Oh, and climber. He's, he's, he's good at long climbs. Oh, he's good at short climb. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's all on you to, to do it. Fast Talk Laboratories offers deep dives into your favorite training topics like intervals, polarized training, data analysis, and sports nutrition. Take a look now at our cycling-based training pathway. Now is the perfect time to see how to lay the perfect foundation for an awesome season. In our new guide to cycling-based training, experts Joe Friel, Dr. Steven Seiler, Brian Kohler, Dr. Andy Pruitt, and I show why good base training isn't just about riding endless miles. We share how to plan and structure your base season, how to monitor your efforts, and how to track your fitness gains so you start your next training phase with a strong aerobic engine. See more at fasttalklabs.com slash pathways. Okay, Seb, so we got you on the clock for one minute. Your uh, your takeaway for the listeners out there, your, your tips, top three, top five tips on how to step up to that next level. First of all would be just setting realistic process oriented uh, expectations. If you want to call them that expectations mm -hmm. for yourself, mm -hmm. if you don't shoot too high, don't shoot too low. You're going to be pleased with, with how you do so long as you, you do everything in your, in your power to, to get there, give, yeah. give 100% or yeah, yeah, leave it all out there, whatever, <laughs> whatever that means. And uh, the second would be, yeah, just keeping, keeping perspective. And there's, there's always another day, always another race. Try not to dwell on things. I mean, analyze what went wrong, what went well, but don't, don't dwell too long and always look, look forward and positively to, to whatever's coming next. Uh, I'll add one really quick, uh, addition to, to your second tip there, which is I, I like to tell my athletes whenever they're going to a race that they're getting a little stressed about write down what your next race is just to have that reminder to yourself that this is not the end of the world. No matter how this goes, there's a race after this mm -hmm. helps to keep the perspective. I think another one I, uh, is patience. Sep doesn't need patience because he went from uh, not knowing how to race a crit in Denver <laughs> in three years ago to uh, 
racing the, the tour of the Basque country. Uh-huh. So he didn't really need that much patience, but sometimes it just takes a long, it takes longer than maybe you want it to, to click. Having patience is a, is a, a great asset. Yeah, I, yeah. I went from not knowing how to race a crit in Denver to in 15 years doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Progression. Patience is all all relative. (laughs) That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com or tweet at us with at FastTalkLabs. Head to FastTalkLabs.com to get access to our endurance sports knowledge base coach continuing education as well as our in-person remote athlete services for sep coos and chris case i'm trevor connor thanks for listening